So from now through Easter, we are considering the second paragraph of the Apostles' Creed, which is all about the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ. And last week we said that he is the incomparable one. So John uses this word, this, this phrase in English, but it's a word in the Greek that means the one and only, uh, in the King James, the only begotten of the Father. But he's also the Christ, the only one who rescues the world, the anointed one, and yet he's known to us by a familiar name, a common name then and yes, even now, Jesus. It's like calling him Bob, right? It's you know this one who is the incomparable one and you can call him by his familiar friendly name. And so today as we continue our way through the creed, we come to this next word, two words actually, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, our Lord, our Lord. It struck me as I was pondering this this week that we don't use this word Lord very much, and when we use it, we tend to use it negatively. So we use it as a verb. You don't lord it over someone. And there's something about American culture that we just don't like the idea of someone being our Lord. Set Jesus aside for a moment. I promise I'm coming back to him. But can, can you think of anybody else in your life that you would be comfortable calling, that's my Lord? So I've been asking my Bible study groups this week for other words, for synonyms. What is in our culture that is comparable to this idea of Lord? And they came up with ideas like coach or boss or teacher or pastor or spouse. I won't mention which gender called that one Lord. Uh, Police officer or mentor. So... The problem is that none of those words is really a 24-7, totally in charge person for my entire life. You know, so even if you're in the military, you may have a commander that is a, a lord for a given period of time, but not for your whole life. So nobody do we really know of in our, in our culture that we would call lord all the time as long as we live. So about uh, midweek, I settled on the word sovereign as maybe the best synonym I could come up with. It seems to be a largely unspoiled word. Like, we don't use it negatively in the way that we might use the word Lord. And we don't refer to our American presidents as sovereign uh, for the same reason that we don't call them Lord, right? For a political parallel, we have to go across the ocean. And if you are a British citizen, then you understand a little bit more about what it means to call someone your sovereign. One of the reasons this came uh, to me, I guess, is because Linda and I have enjoyed a little binge-watching in the last uh, few months of the Masterpiece Theater series about Elizabeth and then Victoria. I think we're almost done with the third season of Victoria now. So I've been thinking about what this looks like for British citizens to call their queen or a king their sovereign. And Victoria, of course, has a rather unusual story. She was born, when she was born, she was fifth in line behind four men to the British throne, but they all died, leaving no other male heir, and so she became queen, and her, her uh, reign lasted for seven decades. And we know about her not only from history books, but from her own personal exhaustive diaries. So she's a fascinating, intriguing person. And while there are certainly flaws in this comparison, as there are in others, I thought about some parallels between this idea of a British sovereign and 
of Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, I'm somewhat influenced by the Masterpiece Theater, okay? So, however good that is. But think about the idea of allegiance. So, if you're a British citizen, you're, whether you're a politician or even just a general citizen, you need to swear an oath to the queen. Like, you owe your loyalty to her. There's a sense of mystery with the queen and so, or the king. There's a, we want to know more about what goes on behind the palace walls, and we're curious enough to create things like the Masterpiece Theater, but we really don't know what happens in the invisible part of their world in the same way that we really don't fully understand and grasp what happens with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There's a mystery around lordship. Then there's the idea of restraint. So the sovereign has more power than the sovereign will exercise at a given moment. Like there's actually a, a, a restraint, not micromanaging, micromanaging details, not interfering in every situation, choosing strategic moments in which to uh, intervene. And then the one that captured me the most was the idea of love. And this, again, from Victoria, you get the idea that she really loved her people and it mattered a lot to her that they loved her back. So this idea of sovereign then sort of captured me. Maybe that's, that, maybe that's one way to understand what the Bible is getting across when it comes to Lord. So I want to test that now as we go to Romans chapter 10. And as you know, I try to base all of my sermons on Scripture, but some of them are easier to follow if you open your Bible, and this is one of those. So if you'll find that pew Bible or your Bible and find Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 4. I'm not going to go exactly through it in sequence, but I will base the next part of my sermon from Romans chapter 10. The most familiar part of this passage, probably to you and certainly to me, is verses 9 and 10. And for all of my 500 confirmants since I have been at Corinth, they had to memorize at least verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the uh, mouth that confession is made to salvation, with the heart that we believe to salvation. So this is a critical part, and most people, most Christians know this part of the text, but maybe not what surrounds it. So I will, uh, as I as I talk to my confirmands, the 12-year-olds, about their relationship with Jesus, they have a one-on-one -on -one appointment with me. I ask them if they know they belong to Jesus, and they usually say yes. And I say, well, how do you know? And somewhere in there, it comes up, well, Jesus died for my sins. And I say, well, that, that, that's, that's true. That's very good. But who is Jesus? Because if, you know, there were a lot of people that were crucified in the first century. They were crucified by the Romans, by others. It doesn't matter just that he suffered a lot or that he died. It matters who he is, that he is the Lord. That's why it matters that he died for our sins. And then oftentimes there's something else I need to bring up for them because maybe it's since I stress so much the death of Jesus for our sins that a lot of times I'll look at a confirmant and say, well, your essay is really good, but you left him dead. So we need to bring Jesus back from the dead here. And, and this is what Paul emphasizes, that, you know, it's not just that he died for our sins, but you need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because that's what makes Jesus unique, that he is the Lord and that he not only died, but that he rose from the dead. That's why we confess him as Lord. But when I think deeper and longer about this passage, it does raise some other questions for me. What exactly am I confessing? What am I saying 
when I use those words, Jesus is Lord. I've heard it said all my life, and someone quoted it going out of 830 service today because I didn't use this at 830 service, but I've heard it said all my life, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Okay? But what does that mean? Like, don't all of us have times when we struggle about letting Jesus be in control of our lives, like worrying too much or forgiving somebody that's really hard to forgive or being possessive with my money or not working for justice in the world or my lust is not under control? At those moments when Jesus is not Lord of all, does that mean, like, I'm not saved? Because... He's got to be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Is, that, is Paul trying to get us to constantly examine, question our salvation? Is that what's going on here? And also, why does Paul make it so critical to confess with your mouth? So let me go to an extreme example here. What if you live in North Korea or parts of Pakistan or India? Is it okay to be a secret believer if, telling, if confessing with your mouth actually threatens not only you, but your family, your job, your home. So just quoting the verses, to me, needs a little bit more content and explanation. And that's why we have the rest of this passage surrounding it. So Romans 9 through 11 is uh, sort of a notoriously difficult passage to uh, agree on what everything that Paul is saying. This is actually the clearest of the, the, the section here. Romans is divided into the first part, which, which Paul begins, like there's no difference, both Jew and Greek. We all have the same need. We're sinners, and Jesus died for all of us. So that's Romans 1 through 8, which ends with this great doxology, I know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The reason Paul includes both Jew and Gentile is because Rome is a cosmopolitan city. He's never visited there. He's explaining his gospel from basically A to Z. And he, and he starts right out saying, look, this covers everybody, this gospel. So when he comes to chapter 9, he's trying to answer the question that arises for Jews in particular, but for those who know their Old Testament. If there's no difference, how do I read in the Old Testament there seems to be a pretty significant difference between the Jews and the Gentiles? Like, aren't they God's chosen people? We thought there was a difference. And so Romans 9, 10, and 11 deal with the Jewish issue from Paul's perspective. And he is a Jew who ministers to Gentiles, so he thoroughly understands it. And basically in chapter 9, he talks about the past. In chapter 10, the present. In chapter 11, the future of the Jewish people in this new gospel reality that is all about Jesus. So that's very important when you go through this passage. So we're going to begin actually in verse 5. Because Paul quotes the Old Testament seven times in this section. Why? Because he's writing about the Jewish people and needs to have a continuity between what the Old Testament says and what the gospel is. So he's going to connect the message of faith in Jesus with the Old Testament. In verse 5 is the first of his quotes. And it's, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. And it's a quote from Leviticus chapter 18. Now, everybody knows what Leviticus is, right? We all love the book of Leviticus. It's, it's one of those places where you read the Bible and you kind of slow down a little bit because it's sort of hard when you get to Leviticus. So Leviticus is a book of rules, lots of rules, rules for individuals, what they should do and not do, rules for the sacrificial system, what kind of sacrifice you need to pay for your sins when you break the rules, and rules for the community about the festivals that they would have to honor their God. 
So in that context, when Paul quotes from Leviticus 18.5, he's saying the person who does all these things will live. Now just let that sink in for a moment. Is Paul, the apostle of grace and faith, affirming what Moses says in Leviticus 18.5, that you need to keep all of the rules in order to have eternal life. That's how you get there. So we had actually begun our, we had planned to begin our reading with verse 5, and in doing some further reading about this passage, I realized we couldn't start there. We had to start with verse 4, because you can't understand verse 5 unless you first read verse 4, which says, Christ is the culmination. That word, if you're into Greek, is telos, but it means either end or goal. I'm going to choose the word goal. Christ is the goal of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, Christ is the one who actually completed the fulfillment of the law. He's the only one who did. And then Paul says, therefore, if you keep the law, you will live. Now think about that for a moment. What he's doing is he's setting you up for the Mosaic standard, which is you really need to keep all the law, but the problem is there's only one person who ever did. And that's Jesus. So Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He did that well. And sure, if you want to be the next person to try to keep God's law all the way through your whole life, that's one way to get eternal life. Just keep it all perfectly. Birth to death, keep the law, guarantee of eternal life. And we're all going like, okay, you just let me out of the equation, right? Which is his setup. So then he begins in verse 6. He offers three more quotes from Deuteronomy 30. Now, you can either keep your finger there or you can flip back to Deuteronomy 30 because I want to show you what he says, all right? So I'm going to read you the passage in Deuteronomy 30. It follows where Paul is talking about the way of life. I mean, excuse me, Moses is talking about the ways of life and the ways of death. This is one of his final farewell speeches. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I didn't write down the verse number. It's like around 12 or so. You'll find it if you've turned there. So Moses says, now what I'm commanding you, this way of life and death, and he's repeated all this law, is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it, nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, Moses says, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. So if you're still looking at Romans 10, you're going to see what he quotes there. But what he's basically saying is that trying to keep all these commandments, even Moses is saying, seems overwhelming, it's discouraging, it's, uh, it's terrifying. Who can sustain that level of focus and effort? And even Moses says, look, it's closer than that. Sort of do the next thing. Let it come out of your mouth. Let it come out of your words. You know, believe it in your heart and do it. And Paul says, that's my bridge to the gospel. So beginning, we're back in Romans 10 again, starting in verse 6, and Paul's saying, aha, there it is. You don't have to go up looking for Christ. He's already come down to heaven. That's what Moses said. And furthermore, you don't have to go searching in or through or beyond the sea to bring Christ back up from the dead. He's already come back from the dead. He's already alive. 
what does Moses himself say to you? The word, remember how John used the word last week for universal communication of God's truth. The word is near you, and where is it? It is in your mouth and in your heart. And now you're ready for Paul to say, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now again, Paul's primary message is about the Jews and to the Jews, and that's where we go for the meaning of what what he's saying when he says that Jesus is Lord. So when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, what does he mean? You've probably heard it said, and I have heard it said, I may have even said it myself, that the comparison is with the first century Roman Empire where it was sort of the Pledge of Allegiance to say that Caesar is Lord. And so the contrast is Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. All right? But think about it for a moment. Paul's not writing to the Romans. He's writing about Jews here. And the most familiar idea to Jews The most critical idea to Jews is not that Caesar is Lord, it's something else. So, if you were a Jew of Paul's day, of Jesus' day, and you read the Bible in Greek, all right, not that you would have done, you don't read it in Greek now, but if you did, if you read the Bible in Greek, which was the Bible most familiar to most of Paul's readers in Rome, You would find the same word for Lord, and again, if you want to know it, the Greek is kurios. You would find the same word for Lord, Jesus is Lord, in your Old Testament Greek Bible 6,000 times. More times than it's in the New Testament. And every time in the Old Testament, that in the Greek Old Testament, that the word kurios is used, it is talking about Yahweh. The Lord, all capital letters in your English Bible. So for a Jewish reader to hear Paul say, Jesus is Lord, they would understand what he means is Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Creator. Think about the implications of that when you read your Old Testament. Jesus is the one who formed man from the dust of the ground and brought forth Adam and Eve in God's image. Jesus is the one that Abram believed and God credited to him as righteousness. Jesus is the one who said to Moses, I am who I am. Jesus is the one to whom Joshua said, as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. We will serve the Lord. Jesus is the one of whom David said, Yahweh is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus is the one Isaiah saw high and lifted up, and the angels cried, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's Jesus. And so for a Jewish person to read this, they're going, wait a minute, this is either blasphemy or it's absolutely earth-changing, life-changing, faith-changing. You're telling me that this person, Jesus, actually is the God of the universe. He is Lord. That's why Caesar is like no comparison to who Paul is saying Jesus is. He is the creator. That little zygote inside Mary's womb is Yahweh, that baby born 
in a Bethlehem stable and placed in a manger is Yahweh. That boy who grew up and at age 12 argued with the priests and, and leaders in the temple, that's Yahweh. That one who was baptized and the father said, this is my beloved son, that's Yahweh. That one who taught the Sermon on the Mount, that is Yahweh. That one who healed the sick and raised the dead and cast out demons, that's Yahweh in the flesh. That one who rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in great victory and the crowds hailed him as Messiah, that is Yahweh. That one who cried out in the garden, my God, my God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. That's Yahweh. The one who cried on the cross, why have you forsaken me? That is Yahweh. The one who rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning, that is God in the flesh. That's Yahweh. And Paul says, if you don't get that, if you don't get that fundamental fact about him, that's the essence of salvation, that Jesus is one with the Father. We go like, oh, i got lots of questions about that. How exactly does that work? How can Jesus be God and talking to God? And how can you know, there be more than one person? I'm going like, that's the Trinity. That's the mystery of the Trinity. I don't have to explain that. That's what I told my Sunday school class this morning. No, I'm not the great explainer of all mysteries, right? But it's the truth. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully human, and that's the gospel that this is who he is. And so when you confess that Jesus is Yahweh and you believe in your heart that God uniquely raised this one from the dead, he died for our sins, he rose again for our salvation, Paul says you will be saved, you will be justified, you will be made part of God's eternal family. So I think that we trivialize this confession when we say things like, have you made Jesus Lord? Your confession does not enhance who he is. He's Lord whether you confess him as Lord or not. It's like going to a British citizen and going like, have you made Elizabeth your queen? It really doesn't matter whether you've made her your queen or not. She's still the sovereign one. But in this case, we're saying Jesus is sovereign. So does it make a difference? Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, does it make a difference in us it doesn't make a difference for Jesus. It doesn't raise or diminish his stature, but it makes all the difference in the world to us when we confess that Jesus is Lord. The passage goes on, and I didn't spend a lot of time in this part in my text, uh, in my sermon text, but Paul goes on to remind you again, starting in verse uh, 11, he starts quoting from the prophets, now anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's from Isaiah. And then he goes on to say, there is no difference, verse 12. Everyone, this is from Joel now, who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Jew and Gentile, we all need to call and we all can call and be saved. And then he quotes this great uh, line that I use in the children's message, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Listen, if this is really the good news that we say it is, how are they going to hear unless someone preaches this message to them? How are the people you know going to hear unless you tell them about Jesus and how can they be sent unless we send them so this is the impetus for missions and evangelism that we are among those who are passionate about making sure that in our words and our actions we give people an opportunity to hear about Jesus and respond to him so get the word out keep finding ways to tell the good news so it turns out 
in my humble opinion, that the word sovereign is actually a great word for this. As long as we understand that we're not talking about a sovereign, we're not talking about even Queen Elizabeth, we are talking about the sovereign of the universe, the one who created everything and rules everything. The word sovereign in its strictest literal sense means absolute rule, total control, unhindered autonomy, and yes, if that's what you mean, Jesus is sovereign. Fully God, fully human, totally in control of everything and everyone from the Big Bang to the Big Crunch, Jesus is sovereign. He is the Lord. But in the Apostles' Creed, we confess him as our Lord. It doesn't diminish him. In the Old Testament, they would say Yahweh is our God. They didn't mean like as opposed to, you know, he's not God of anybody else. No, but we are the ones who have come to know who Yahweh is. He's our God. And when we confess Jesus as our Lord, we're saying we're the ones who have come to understand and grasp and confess and proclaim that this Jesus is Yahweh. He's our God in a very personal way. So one of the other reasons that I made the connection between uh, Jesus and Elizabeth and Victoria or other monarchs in England is because of a story that I encountered early in the week. And it was actually Pastor Paul who shared this story with me, and he got it from somebody else's sermon. And sometimes, honestly, when I hear stories from somebody else's sermon that sound too good to be true, I'm pretty skeptical. So I googled this story and found 10 other preachers who had used this story, which only makes me more skeptical. I'm sorry, I know I am a preacher, but like just because a lot of preachers tell a story doesn't mean it's true. And so I had to go to the second page of my Google search, and there I found that this story is actually validated by Queen Victoria's own diaries. So uh, it's true. This is real. This really happened. And here's the story. Queen Victoria had attended worship at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and afterwards she asked her chaplain, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? And the chaplain kind of wavered and said, no, I'm not really sure that you can know in this life. Well, somehow the media picked up on this story and published it all over Britain, this conversation between Victoria and her chaplain. And there was an evangelist named John Townsend who read the story and wrote a letter to Queen Victoria, not knowing if she would ever get it or read it or pay attention to it. And this is what he wrote. To Her Gracious Majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects, with trembling hands but heartfelt love. I got chills going up and down my spine while I'm reading this. This is so cool. With trembling hands but heartfelt love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now of our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture, John 3.16 and Romans 10.9 and 10. So this is where he pointed her. Go read this passage from Romans. These passages prove that there is full assurance of salvation by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who believe and accept his finished work, I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. And in about two weeks, he received a handwritten reply from Queen Victoria. And she said to John Townsend, your letter of recent date I received and in reply would state that I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and I trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you. 
signed Victoria. So here's a sovereign saying that she has met the sovereign and because she has confessed Jesus as her sovereign, she can have the great assurance of being in his home forever. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. You know, it's never just about one little uh, prayer that you pray. It really is a life of commitment to Jesus as Lord. But maybe there is someone for whom this is kind of new or just a reminder. And you need to say to him today that you know who he is and that you believe that he died and rose again and that you confess him as Yahweh, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the sovereign. You can just do that as you talk to him today. And God, I thank you that you have not put requirements on us that mean we need to ascend up into heaven or go down to the depths or keep doing things 24-7 for all of our life to be loved by you. We are amazed by your grace that has loved us, chosen us, given us faith to trust in you, and has made possible for us eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we be those who confess and believe and proclaim who Jesus is. For we pray, as he taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.